This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call on uh, the 10th of August 2023. And uh, with me to, uh, today, I have Altea. I also have Dean Jacobson, which we have brought into the, into the studio to talk about uh, his call for stagflation live. We'll come back to that in a few seconds. Just quickly on the market, we had uh, a new low on the close yesterday in the S&P 500 for the cycle, the downward cycle that started in, uh, in early August. Um, and... Normally, we, we show you know the, um, the the Nasdaq 100 or the S&P 500 futures on our first slide, slide two um, on this today's slide deck. But today, I wanted to highlight Nvidia because Nvidia is at the center of this AI cluster that has really been the big driver this year in terms of performance in the equity market. And we had a significant technical breakdown in in Nvidia yesterday, as you can see on the price action there, the daily price chart and. Um, yeah, it's um, as Kim, our technical analysis, said on our internal call. This is, is really beginning to look ugly, and um, some of the other AI-related stocks have also been quite weak. And there is a very key link and connection to the bubble stocks basket that we have. And you can see on our Saxo Equity Themes Performance Overview table there, also on slide two, I have sorted on months to date. You can see that the two, the three best performing themes have been defense, nuclear power, and commodities, and and the worst have been new biotech, and our bubble stocks. Bubble stocks down almost 13% already months to date. So it's it's beginning to look quite ugly. And our view uh, in the strategy team is that for all our clients and also non-clients listening to this podcast, if you have a lot of gains from these AI-related stocks, it's a pretty good idea to to take some uh, some gains uh, some gains at this point because it's... Um, yeah, we've just simply gone too far on this. Uh, this, and I'll I'll be writing a, a piece next week where I'll highlight and 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 you know compare the expectations with actually the growth realizations along among a lot of these AI companies because I think it's actually the realized growth that is it's disappointing at this point in this point in time. But Steen, we need to bring you into the conversation on slide three. We flagged it the other day on the on the podcast that we have put out this macro digest piece, the coming stagflation. Light and uh, on slide three, I've put in uh, uh, the good summary you did uh, of the article itself. I've put in a little, a little um, screenshot there from Schroeder's that talks about which se- sectors in the equity market are, are good or bad during stagflation. They have uh, their own definition of stagflation. I don't really agree with that, but I think I don't know whether the results of their analysis will change that much. But I want you to talk a little about about stagflation. Why the call? Why now? I know you know you're you you, you think you're really early on this. Uh, and then maybe also touch a little bit on why why call it light? What what is it all about when you say light? Yeah, so obviously stagflation, like any other economic term, is up for interpretation on and what it what it really means. But what we needed to differentiate between here was that we don't think the economy is merely going into a recession because we acknowledge that there is still a very sticky inflationary pressures in the economy, and to some extent, we even expect that the inflation from energy and and, uh, and overall from the lack of productivity in the economy will continue to sort of drift upwards in, in terms of the pricing mechanism. So the CPI numbers we get today may be the low in the cycle in terms of month over month, as we have already seen that the energy prices, uh, in particularly uh, crude and Brent, 
has, has been rising significantly off its lows. So it's, it's sort of acknowledging that uh, it is slower growth, but is also still with an elevated inflation outlook. And light simply because we're not saying inflation is going to go to 10%. What we're saying is that we disagree with the concept that Fed and the global central banks will be able to take inflation down to 2 2.5%. We are rather thinking that we will stay in a 3 to 3.5% inflation on the medium term, and even with a risk, if there is any risk to the offside of that. So slower growth and uh, sticky inflation is really what, what makes us call it the stagflation light. I should probably also add that, uh, unlike a lot of other institutions, uh, SaxoStrax doesn't spend a lot of time trying to read the tea leaves of what went on for the last three months and what is Fed going to do. What we try to do instead is to operate a model where we are looking at the policy responses to the data in the past and then setting out probability scenarios from this. And this is exactly what got me and, and us to change the overall core here because uh, simplistically put, the burden on the consumer who's been driving the growth uh, partly because they've been fully employed and partly because they've had access to credit, is now turning around for two reasons. One, because there are almost punitive uh, uh, prices to the credit card, to the mortgages, uh, to the car loans, which, of course, is the three big components in consumption. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing that the... Uh, uh, the amount of time we have spent is, is also becoming an issue. If you think about it, if you have interest rate or oil prices, for that matter, at $100 in oil for a couple of months, it doesn't really matter. But if you're doing $100 a month for a full year, the impact is significant on your energy bill. And that is exactly the same that goes on in terms of the consumer. Uh, the consumer has been drawing down the net savings they were given in the biggest fiscal stimulus ever in history. So basically... What we're saying is that the manufacturing, uh, uh, global manufacturing recession that we've seen will now roll into the consumer side as well. And the early indication of that, of course, being that the emerging market countries, which uh, let the interest rate up and also in terms of magnitude, they did more tightening than anybody else in the world. They are now starting to ease the policy led by Chile and Brazil, and, and now a number of other central banks are, are, are in line to, to also cut interest rates. So we think, you know, we have early signs that is a, a harbinger for a potential change at a time where the market is the most vulnerable, and that's really our message. Yeah, I, li I, like, the, uh, I like the way you frame it, and, and in an essence, it's also this whole thing about it. It's, it's going to be the ultimate test, or maybe just, you know, evidence that this MIT on paper it sounds like a very sound policy but there is a real cost to this type of thinking um wouldn't you agree on that i mean it's just like it, it, you you can push on this MIT uh, sorry MMT policy but at one point it's it, it's the wheels are coming off the uh, of the uh, the car basically and, and and it leads to a stagflationary environment Absolutely. And, and, and what dawned of us is that, uh, I mean, to be, to be honest, we've always been skeptical about MNT because in, in short, MNT is the concept that you can, uh, as a government, and if you have your own currency, you can fund infinite amount of debt without any impact on the economy and on the uh, rates. That is, of course, not true because the price you pay for increasing the amount of debt, as we've seen over the last decade, is that you need to operate an economy with the negative euro rates because a number of these investments that you do, actually majority of the investments you do on the NMT is entitlement program. It is uh, 
uh, catering to uh, to minority segments of the economy, and it's certainly uh, in the last few years uh, a misplaced uh, strategy to make funds available for green transformation independently of whether this green transformation actually works and have productivity and the ability to actually survive standing on its own going forward. So MMC has become the operational platform, not only for politicians, but also for central banks. Uh, I don't think they will uh, say that outright because uh, even among central bankers, certainly there's still some voodoo uh, significance to, to this uh, theory. Uh, but if you look at the uh, Federal Reserve Board, if you look at the uh, economic advisors to Biden, they're full of people who fully embrace the MMT. Uh, and as such, it's, it's, uh, it's already proven that is the case. But if you don't believe in, in that sort of analysis, just look at the debt rate in the U.S. and what is happening to it. U.S. runs a total debt of $32 trillion. The deficit year to date is $1.3 trillion. And as I said in the morning meeting recently, until recently, I didn't even know how much a $1 trillion was. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a huge number. And, and under this, uh, the issue that we are facing and why we're also making the call right now is that if you look at 10-year real rates, so interest rate minus inflation in the U.S., they have gone from at the low point at being at 107 basis point minus to now being 160 basis points plus. So we have seen a shift of 260 basis points higher in real rates. When you have positive real rates, it does two things. It increases the hurdle rate for investment, which indirectly is a very good thing for the long term because in order to actually put money to work, you will have to have a productivity embedded into the projects. But of course, it stops short all of the uh, platforms, all of the ideas that is operating either because it's a social benefit and it has no productivity or uh, products and, and ideas, which is really based on uh, a marketing plan that is to get a huge audience with no earnings. And of course, that is unsustainable in an environment of positive interest rates. Yeah, I think it's also it's, it's pretty daunting to look at how the fiscal deficit in the U.S. is expanding right now with an ultra low unemployment rate and and where the economy is i think that's a that's a new that's a new uh frontier for u.s economic policy um i want to <clears throat> quickly before we uh, we head uh, forward with other topics and altia is with me of course so she's patiently waiting for us to um to to get to the next topic but um staying with this stagflation on slide four i i just put in a proxy for uh for stagflation which was the adding basically the cpi uh, year and year with the unemployment rate minus real GDP growth. And then um, you clearly see on this chart the very elevated time series here during the uh, during the 70s, which was the, the, the last real meaningful long environment of a uh, long period environment of, uh, of stagflation. And I, I thought it was quite interesting that those two recent spikes we've had in this indicator was uh, just after the great financial crisis in, in 2009. And we had it a year ago around June 2022. And exactly at those two spikes, we had a lot of commentaries and analysis. Uh, in, in For a year ago, World Bank had this piece, what does stagflation mean for the global economy? And then the word stagflation disappeared. And the same in 2009, people thought we were entering a stagflation environment. It turned out to be almost a deflationary or very, very low inflationary environment. And the reason why I put in this um, this indicator here, Steen, is that I think a lot of people are missing are missing the fact that everyone have their eyes on the fact that inflation have come down. Um, but I think that's really missing the point. The key the key thing to look for is 
the flaw structurally on inflation, but also when we get the next the next wave and with the latest signs we've seen on, on food prices and, and energy um, and with the tightness still seeing uh, a lot in, in the economy, we're doing the green transformation, we are running out of cheap labor in Asia, we're doing changing the supply chain, we're drumming up uh, the war economy with the war in Ukraine, so we're spending much more money on military as well. All these indicators suggest to me, and this is just my hypothesis, and I don't know how much you agree with it one for one, but I'm just waiting for this next, the second wave um, coming in this this indicator where we'll have sustained more higher inflation and, and the unemployment rate maybe, maybe will also begin to tick up, but at least the real GDP growth will be low. No, I mean, this is historic data, so that goes to what I you know, talked about earlier, that uh, most people look backwards in terms of what they're doing in, in forward projections. But let's just uh, operate with the, the three components, uh, CPI year-on-year unemployment rate and minus real GDP growth. So let's say, for argument's sake, we have 4% uh, floor on CPI, and unemployment rate of 7 is not unrealistic. Uh, under the uh, circumstances of uh, cooling down in the economy, that is four plus seven, that's 11. And then real GDP at minus one is 12. And that gets you to uh, another high point and, and a reversal of that trend that you see in that chart. Uh, so basically, that also explains why it's a, it's a stagflation light. It's nothing close to what we saw in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, but it's certainly at a level which will be uh, punitive to the growth outlook, to the employment, and to some extent on the positive side, will force, if we keep uh, and maintain positive real rates, will maintain an economy which is looking for productivity gains left, right, and center, and where ultimately we will have this uh, forest fire of companies that shouldn't be in business and replace them with more productive, better ways to do things, in particularly in the real economy where we operate with uh, deficiencies in energy, in defense spending, uh, rolling out uh, energy consumptions uh, better, and, and, and ultimately uh, education systems that needs to be reinvigorated through a much, much higher investment into to the future to, 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 to anchor these productivity gains. Great. Stein? As always, it's a it's a huge pleasure to have you on the the podcast and elaborate on your uh, on your macro thoughts and especially on this one. I think it's going to be a crucial and more discussed topic as we uh, progress from here. And um, with those words, I'll just uh, say thank you. I'll let you go on the podcast, and I will will go to the next uh, topic. I'll tell you. So I hope you are you're ready. So um, we're going to talk about the um, going to talk about the inflation report because that's coming out to today. And um, on slide five, we have put in some slides here on, um, or some charts on the US CPI, also the core, also some of the projections, what are we seeing in the inflation swaps. And um, I'll tell, I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about, you know, the CPI reports up 12.30 GMT and, and what, what do you think it means? What are, what are the projections or the estimates and what do you see and, and how they can react or how it will, you know, cause a reaction in the bond market? Yes, Peter, the expectation, the market expectations is that for the CPI, core CPI monthly, on a monthly basis, uh, to come out at 0.2%, which annualized will take us uh, to um, a core CPI of 2.4%. So 
what the market is thinking today is that if we get that monthly figure, um, then and this will be the second time, the second month on a row that we will get 0.2 on a monthly basis, um, then um, inflation worries might be behind of us. Uh, therefore, there is no reason for the Federal Reserve to think about interest rate hikes. Actually, uh, the interest rate cut cycle might be uh, closer than envisioned, and that could provoke a rally across the yield curve, especially in the front part of the yield curve. Uh, but uh, following the CPI report today, uh, there is something very important happening, uh, which is uh, the 30-year U.S. Treasury auction. Um, yesterday, we had uh, the um, U.S. Treasuries uh, selling a 10-year um, 10-year uh, bonds, uh, and uh, they were uh, well bid. Um, demand uh, was uh, very strong, uh, but they priced uh, higher than uh, the when it should yield. So that tail, even though it's very, um, very little, uh, it makes me think that uh, despite uh, um, investors are happy to buy 10-year U.S. Treasuries or long-term uh, U.S. Treasuries. They want uh, to be rewarded uh, adequately. Um, but uh, today, auction is going to be more interesting because uh, the 30-year um, auction was uh, increased uh, by volume by around uh, 40% compared to the previous month. And uh, um, the 30-year U.S. Treasury is trading at 3.2% in yield. If uh, we have uh, the auction prices uh, pricing around uh, the current yield, uh, then uh, this auction would price at the highest yield in 11 years. So basically, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, the pickup compared to previous auction, it's, uh, it's going to be appealing but the auction size is has been increased so much that we have to understand whether investors uh, um, can uh, um, open up their portfolio and take on more duration risk at this point of time, which they might do if the inflation report shows that 0.2% uh, monthly pickup in, uh, in inflation. Um, but um, I'm going to take you now on slide number eight. And uh, what's interesting here is that uh, the spread between 30-year U.S. Treasury yields and 20-year U.S. Treasury yields is negative, uh, 16 basis points. So basically, 20-year U.S. Treasuries pay you a yield higher than 30-year U.S. Treasuries. So if we see a rally in the very long part of the yield curve, uh, the ones that they might gain the most is going to be these 20-year uh, U.S. treasuries, uh, which is a maturity that normally is not pretty much liked by the market. Uh, but um, now I want to uh, link again with what uh, Steen has just said about uh, a stagflation, and uh, I want to understand uh, what that means uh, for the safe haven, so for 10-year U.S. Treasury yields. And I'm going to take you on slide number nine. And uh, what happens here is that uh, um, we have seen a correction in yield uh, this, uh, this week, which have taken uh, um, the 10 years yields from uh, 4.20 um, to around uh, 4% uh, now. 
Um, and uh, many are speculating that this is the end of the bear bond market. But as uh, Steen said, if we have slightly higher unemployment and we have uh, um, sluggish economic growth, but not a recession, then uh, I would uh, expect uh, these uh, 10 years yields to continue to resume their rise. So, and also from a technical uh, analysis point of view, uh, we would need uh, to have something major that takes 10 years yields uh, to test uh, support at 3.75% uh, and break below that level in order for them to, to begin a bearish uh, trend. Right now, they are still in an uptrend, and until something major doesn't change, I can see uh, 10-year U.S. Treasuries uh, moving higher. All right. Good stuff, Iltia. Um we, uh, we need to talk a little bit about a slide that uh, Ole put in. It's about the energy markets. And um, I briefly mentioned it when we talked about stagflation that, you know, energy markets and, and you know, agricultural markets can certainly begin uh, move again and, and impact the inflation outlook. And yesterday was a big move in, in the natural gas market. So we have uh, U.S. natural gas is, is, um, is closing above, or sorry, is trading above uh, three, $3. Um we have very hot weather in the U.S. in the southern southern states. Um, I think it was last week. Electricity prices in Texas just went ballistic. I mean, I think I think it reached uh, at a peak uh, twice the level we paid here in Denmark when we had the the uh, the peak electricity crisis here. And it's because of the warm weather is uh, forcing people to spend more energy on cooling their homes. And you can also see the total natural gas in underground storage is uh, is not really for following its natural its natural. Um, increase at this time of the year because of this hot weather. So um, elevated natural gas prices in the U.S., the highest um, we have seen uh, this year almost, except for the little spike we had in early March. And then if you take the Dutch uh, futures contract um, that is measuring the natural gas price um, here in Europe, we uh, we galloped uh, more than 30% yesterday. And it all comes down to uh, LNG supply risk. So there was a lot of talk about a potential strike in Australia, Nothing is confirmed yet that they have gone on strike, but it's it's definitely a key risk here. And Australia is the largest, it's the largest global exporter of LNG. It's bigger than Qatar in the U.S. at this point in time. So um, if that materializes itself, it will drastically impact the available LNG supplies globally, and that will of course impact Europe. If you look at the stocks to watch today, we um, we have Novo Nordisk. They they reported uh, Q2 earnings today. I wrote a very long piece yesterday on Novo Nordisk and the outlook for Vigovia and uh, the whole the whole industry with this new trial data showing that uh, Vigovia, and, um, which is the Novo's weight loss drug, also in a control group, uh, reduced heart risk or uh, cardiovascular risks by, by 20% for this uh, group of people they followed, more than 17,000 people uh, plus 45 against this control group. So very interesting there. Uh, Vigovia sales for Q2 actually beat expectations. They're doing... Nova is going to do a two-for-one split. It's coming on the 13th of uh, September. And they're also saying in their statement that they're ramping up uh, production of Begovi as fast as they can. They're actually adding significant capacity on a daily 
on a daily basis. Very interesting story to track uh, for people here in Europe because it's fast approaching, uh, becoming the the most valuable company in uh, in Europe. And then another European company, uh, Siemens, also reporting today, shares are down four percent. They're disappointing on the revenue figures, and uh, the outlook is not looking terribly inspiring. Especially they're saying China is a very very big negative surprise given where they thought the Chinese economy would be just five months ago. And there is nothing that is indicating that the Chinese growth is uh, staging a comeback here in the second half. So very, very depressing news there from Siemens on the Chinese economy, at least from from what they're seeing in the, in their businesses. And then Disney, we have to talk about Disney. They they made a huge negative surprise yesterday on the uh, Disney Plus um, video subscriber figures. They missed by nine million, um, so one hundred and forty six versus one hundred and fifty five expected. You would think that investors would be pretty scared about such um such a measure but there are two things so first of all you as you can see on the on the five-year price chart we've put in on disney we're trading very close to the lows for this five-year period getting very close to the lows during the the early months of the pandemic very depressed share price but i think investors because they sent it up the shares two percent they sent the shares up two percent uh despite this big miss and that was because the the company announced that they are they are in the midst of rolling out twenty seven percent price increase for their Disney Plus video streaming service. So I think the investors are like, finally, we've been complaining about the lack of profitability in the streaming business for so long now. Finally, you're doing something about it, and we'd rather have a smaller subscriber base in the future, which is profitable, than trying to um, to sacrifice profitability for the sake of growth just to have large growth numbers. So, watch Disney today in trading. I think it's going to be exciting, and then. Earnings watch. Um, the focus today in the U.S. is going to be Alibaba. They're going to report before the market opens. Pretty, um, pretty positive uh, re- revenue expectations for the Q2. Nine percent uh, revenue growth is expected, and uh, an increase in operating profits from from a year ago of, uh, of almost 25%. Let's see whether they can manage to do that. It's not because the indicators out of China have been particularly rosy, but maybe, maybe they have, uh, maybe they have actually delivered. Um, surprisingly stronger growth rates. I think 9% sounds pretty high for Alibaba given what we've seen in China. But on the other hand, there is a re- rebound from very low levels um, when, as from when society was more closed down. So maybe, maybe, let's see whether they can deliver on this. And then in terms of the, the macro calendar, it's not entirely inspiring outside, of course, the, um, the CPI report that LTA talked about. We have uh, continuing and initial jobless claims are out around at the same time. You have the uh, EIA's weekly natural gas storage changes, obviously important given the the volatility and the price action we're seeing in the in the natural gas market. So um, yeah, stay tuned for that. And then tomorrow, the only meaningful report that is will be out is the U.S. July PPI report. And then we're looking ahead for this Jackson Hole Symposium structural shift in the global economy. I think it's going to be a very exciting central bank conference. Uh, as it almost always is, but this year in particular, given this um, given this environment that we're in right now. So um, I think uh, with that, I think it's a wrap on uh, of today's um, podcast, and uh, we'll be back same time and place tomorrow. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>